but also also remember remember you know that they have they had weapons and the weapons always had ammunition you know and, and the a big thing in, in a lot in a lot of a lot of these countries where there's an uprising if you like there'll be a lot of weapons but there won't be a lot of ammunition oh i didn't know this well that the ammunition's far more difficult to acquire than the weapon is yeah, you only need one weapon. You need as many rounds as you need to do the fighting. Absolutely. So, if you don't have if you don't have ammunition, you've got a club. That's really all you've got is a big stick. This is the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Each week, I sit down with an expert to chat with them about their expertise. How did they gain the knowledge that they have, and what are they doing and putting out into the world? that the rest of us might be interested in learning about. This week, my interview was a little bit slower paced than the last few weeks have been, but it is no less spellbinding or intellectually stimulating. I sat down with a man named Lawrence Maddock, who was born and lived in Rhodesia, which later became Zimbabwe. Lawrence and I sit down and have a wide-ranging conversation about what it was like to be born in a country that was in the midst of a civil war, and what happens if, after you become an adult and you've been putting on years and years of work, suddenly your currency becomes devalued and the inflation rate goes through the roof to astronomical proportions. What is that like? How does your country respond? One of the things that you will notice in this interview is while Lawrence is talking about really traumatic things for a country or any individual within a country to experience, you'll notice he has phrases like, there's always a silver lining. And I think that that is one of the most compelling parts about Lawrence. He has an upbeat and um, positive outlook on the world that I didn't expect from somebody that had experienced so much in a part of the world that has really gone through a lot of tumult. So, I'm going to let this interview ride because I think you will find it fascinating. One of the things that he's going to talk about in the end is a company that he has started, and we end up calling it by a bunch of different names. It is a very interesting product, and I can tell you as a person that lived in sub-Saharan Africa for a short time, what Lawrence has created is nothing short of astounding. And as soon as he explained it, I was like, oh my gosh, Why didn't somebody else think of this years and years and years ago? So I hope you stick around all the way through to the end of the interview because what Lawrence is putting together, I think, has the potential to really be a big positive impact on sub-Saharan Africa. So buckle in and enjoy the interview. Lawrence Maddock, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Vance. Good to be here. So you are the first real deep accent that I've had on the podcast. Everybody else has been uh, hardcore Midwesterners and one dairy farmer from the West Coast. You're clearly not from St. Louis. Where are you from? Where are you coming in from? Um, Born and raised in a Southern African country called Zimbabwe, which was called Rhodesia up until uh, April 1980, um, when Zimbabwe gained the independence and it became Zimbabwe. So I'm a Zimbabwean. Um, as with my family, my family and I are all from Zimbabwe. And as total candor, your son just proposed to one of my closest friends, Valerie Bays. Indeed. And uh, she said you were in town just for a couple more days yep. and that you and I could have a fantastic conversation if we found time to do it, which is why I invited you here cool. on the podcast. Absolutely. Yep. Very fortunate. My son's found a 
wonderful young woman to to marry and yeah wonderful and i don't know if you know this but her father has actually been on the podcast he was he's a detective here in st louis yes indeed i I had heard that (laughs) he he must have had some very interesting things to say yeah it was uh it was shocking actually Mm. that was the first time when i was like i am going to be doing some things that are a little Uh, uncomfortable here because he talked about crazy stories so i'm I'm sure you are in for a a wonderful family and i'm I'm glad you two are coming together yeah absolutely i hope we i hope we see some some of each other because it's a long way away obviously so uh what do you do in south africa and in zimbabwe um i have a hospitality background so i spent 30 odd years in hotels um Right from low-end uh, one-star hotels all the way up to top-end uh, leading hotels of the world in rela- relation to small small leading hotels. Um, and so these was, are people going on safari or they're for Africans? or Well, both, both in terms of the safari experience and also for businesses and city hotels where it's mainly a, a business type of clientele. Um, but yeah, so fairly, fairly well, well-rounded in, term, in terms of tourism and in terms of business travel um, from the hospitality side. So and were it, you born in Africa? I was born in Zimbabwe. Okay. Yeah. So I've, I've known Zimbabwe all my life, school, schooling, after schooling, military, military for a, a three-year period, um, and then hospitality. What brought your family to Zimbabwe of all places? My mother was, is South African, um, and her, her, grandfather came to South Africa in, in the 1800s from Scotland. Um, so they settled in, in Natal, and from Natal they then moved up through the country of South Africa. My mother then moved to Rhodesia, what was then Rhodesia, to be with her sister and her mother um, in her early 30s, and met my father who had come to Tanzania from the from the Second World War, he was uh, he was in Lancaster bombers. He then in the Air Force. He then moved to Tanzania on the coffee projects, and then from the, from Tanzania he then moved or Tanganyika, which then became Tanzania. He then moved down to Rhodesia and met my mother, and then they got married, etc. And what kind of work were they doing? My mother was in secretarial work, and my father was a fitter turner. So when I heard that you were available to do the podcast and that you had been in the military in Zimbabwe, I went to look this up and I actually, this is one of those experiences where I'm a little bit embarrassed of my knowledge of history because I had literally no idea at all about how the Cold War had played out in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, mm-hmm. and um, and and really like just how much of a changeover or a flip that happened in that area so, but you were in the military as much of this was going on. Is that correct? Yeah, um, Rhodesia, Rhodesia which, which is what it was when we when we were fighting the fighting the war. There were obviously various sides involved in the war, but I, I was a Rhodesian who was raised, born and raised in Rhodesia, and as a result, you would get your call up papers. You were um, is that a draft? Yeah, you were drafted when you were eighteen. Um, so, so, so doing your national service or being drafted was compulsory, um, but it was also something that most most people were very happy to do, um, because whether whether you were on the right side or the wrong side, whatever your political beliefs were, um, you had a you had a fa- fairly large number of people that supported what you were doing. Um, so when when I was seven, seventeen. Um, 
I didn't get my draft papers or my call-up papers. I then volunteered and joined joined the army um, and did did a period period in the army, which was in, actually incredibly interesting. Um, I was in in the army until independence, which was in April 1980, and um, we then. Um, what were you doing in the army? I was a paratrooper. I was in um, a, a battalion called Redition Light Infantry, and we did uh, we did para work. We did we did callouts, and we would go do callouts and. And when you got your draft papers, or no, when you volunteered, actually, yes. then um, were, were you already in, was was Zimbabwe or Rhodesia at the time in an active conflict, or was it just hey, we're getting ready so we have a strong standing army? Okay, no, that's a good question. So Ian Smith, who was the the prime minister during UDI, which is called the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, that was done in on the eleventh of November, nineteen sixty five, when Rhodesia. Um, declared that they were being becoming independent from England, the colonizers. Oh, so England obviously was not too happy with this um, state of affairs, and they it was abrupt. Was it a? It was a declaration. So Rhodesia declared that they were now no longer going to be under the power of Britain. How would you have been a high school kid at this time? No, I was four years old. Oh really? Okay, mm. so so pretty young, yeah. And so you've pretty much only known life as an independent nation from Great from, Britain, from England. Yes. Okay, indeed. My father, however, is English or was English. He's passed now, um, and he he wasn't wasn't too convinced by the whole unilateral declaration side of things. And in fact, when a couple of years later, he then went back to England. Um, I stayed behind with my mother, who had a, had South African heritage, um, and I stayed behind with her, and and he went back to the UK. Um, so we grew up under under Rhodesian rule. So 1967, I think the first the first attacks were made um, against Rhodesians by the insurgents, by the people coming in um, wanting who who opposed Ian Smith um, from inside the country. Well, they were, they were had based themselves outside outside and inside the country. So their their training etc was done outside the country in in, in neighboring countries, Zambia, Mozambique etc. Um, but they would then come in and they would then strike uh, targets with within the country and then flee back to the countries that they were based in. Would this have been like uh, terrorist attacks like you see on TV now? Yeah. Or? We we have to be we have to be careful about in terms of politics in terms of what we call them whether they're terrorist attacks or freedom fighters or. Um, Interesting. I guess I just meant the tactic. Yeah, it, yeah. it was it, one it, of it surprise. Was, it was through terror. Yeah, that would that would be correct. So it was it was terror in, in that sense of the word. Um, so that they, they would come and they would they would they would largely attack farms, farmhouses, homesteads, um, and drive drive people out of out of their home out of their homesteads. Oh. on farms so um, taking over land then or, or well that, that yeah that the idea wasn't wasn't to take over the land at that stage it, it was more to to inflict terror so people would leave um, but yes obviously the ultimate goal was to attain land attain the country etc cetera, etc cetera, from from there but, and this um, is how you the world was as you were growing up you're going to grade school and into high school and you're hearing about these things go on? Oh, sure. But, and 70, 80 kilometers from where you live. Um, 
So it, it wasn't far away. So 80 kilometers, sorry, just to put that in kind of imperial me- measurements, 45, 50 miles wow. from, from where you lived, yeah. Um, so yes, you you grew up with it. The, the Rhodesians did a, did an incredible job with um, with keeping the war separate from civilian life. They were, they were very clever with that. Remember, remember in those days, you didn't have internet and and smartphones and computers and 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 the rest of it. So, you know, un, unlike today, where where news would get around so much faster. Um, you know, people re- relied on listening to it on the radio or for a broadcast to come up on television after five o'clock in the afternoon um, because that's when our television came on. Um, in, the, in, the, in the late 60s and 70s, television would start at five o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, wow. Um, so you would, you would wait until that news came, came by. Unless, of course, you had someone who was directly involved or had been shot or had, had been affected in, in the particular contact in any way, and then obviously you would know a lot earlier. Um, but other, otherwise, they, the 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 Rhodesian um, propaganda machine, if you like, for, for you know, for want of a better description, was incredibly effective in keeping the population relatively calm through what was through what was going on. Um, and you know, certainly as you got older and as you were then personally involved, you saw a lot more of it. Um, because you were involved in it, but you, your family and friends at, at home in, in in the city, never really kind of um, assimilated what was what was happening outside of the city or, or in in the country. So this actually explains when I was doing a little research on this, I watched some BBC reports on the day after Mugabe was voted into power. Yes. And there were people in the city that they were interviewing to say, what do you think of this? And I was shocked because on the one hand, you were describing a whole lot of uh, conflict and war. And then in the city, people were just walking around like they were going to work. And so I I actually wondered about that. Mm -hmm. Like how serious could the fighting have been if these people were like this? But you're saying it was... There were groups of people saying, let's actively try and make it so people live normal lives away from the yeah, conflict. Absolutely. You know, that, that what, what one, one has, to, has to think about through this, and, it, and unless you're directly involved, it's very difficult to kind of uh, get, get a bearing on, on what was going on. So you had a situation for 16 years where Rhodesia was under sanctions, worldwide sanctions. Okay. Um, and that that's 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 fairly fairly difficult. You know, we we seeing it now in in countries like Iran, for example, in the Middle East, where they're suffering from sanctions and and watching their country's economy literally fall apart because of sanctions. Was it on that level, like in oh, Iran? No, abso- absolutely. Oh, really? Oh, no, we we had worldwide sanctions. So, who who prompted the sanctions? The British did. Because you left. Because of you. Because we declared UDI. Absolutely. Oh. Mm. So be, because we declared UDI. England obviously then went to the United Nations and and stated their case and that uh, that Rhodesia had gone out on a limb on their own and had you know basically had said to, to the UK that they wanted nothing more to do with them um, in terms of a governance scenario. Um, so yes, the, the United Nations then supported the UK obviously because the UK was a extremely large player in the world as it right. still is, um, and obviously supported Britain and, and declared sanctions on, on Rhodesia, on this little country called Rhodesia. Um, so so there, then we, what, what, what happened, and, and getting back to the point of, of people running, leading a normal life in town, etc. 
we then had to come up with ways of manufacturing everything um, and, and getting things smuggled into the country by friendly, by friendly players um, that were involved as, as well. And, and obviously, we would pay top dollar for them, um, but we'd be able to get them. So we, we would make, uh, talk about biodegradable fuel, we would make a good percentage of our fuel from sugarcane. So it was all biofuel from sugarcane. Really? Absolutely. For, for gasoline cars? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you'd, you'd make all the, all the petrol would be a blend. So you'd, you'd get a small amount of, of fuel being imported into the country from South Africa, generally. And you'd then blend it with the ethanol that was produced from the sugarcane. Um, and you had this blended fuel. And you ran, literally ran the country's fuel needs from, from cane. Having this level of joint sacrifice or trying to figure it out had to have a galvanizing effect on, on the people population. In the, yeah. Yeah. So the people you find that and I'm not I'm not talking about a specific colour now, I'm talking about the people of the country. Um yes, there were there were definitely people who were more um more decided to move move the country to majority rule and for you know, for all of that to happen, including ninety percent of the whites. But it, it was it was the timing that was the majority of the discussion was how long it, how long the timing should take, and it's like any it's like any of us um, when we decide we want something, we don't want to wait for it to happen. We want it to happen now, and I think that's that's pretty much a human condition. I, I don't think that's unique to right. specific people. Um, and so you, yes, you had you had um, black political activists who obviously wanted control of their country sooner rather than later. Um, and then you had the white government who said, no, later, later is better than sooner. And it's, re- it's really that, that's the, the area that the disagreement was on. Um, and obviously because UDI was declared, um, Britain was, was a lot more, had a lot softer ear for the black uh, political activists um, because the the people that were in power were the ones that had declared that they wanted independence. Hundred percent. Wow, yeah. that is mm. more complicated than mm. I thought. And then you have not only do you have Rhodesia versus the world, then you have portions of Rhodesia against other portions of Rhodesia. Pe- people trying to vie for power there. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And that's when you came of age. Well, that's yeah. T- towards the late seventies is when when I came of age. So. The, I was I was only involved in the in the war scenario from 1978 until 1980, um, because that's that's the age that, that I was at. Um, were they they were under sanctions for 15 years? 16 years. 16 yeah. years. Mm. That must have just been a, a really desolate place to live. Not at all. Not really. At all. Not at all. Because what what uh, what the what the Rhodesians then did um, is they then made and copied everything that you could buy outside of the country. So, you know, let's, let's just talk about groceries because that's, that's always, always the one that affects everybody immediately. Right. Um, you know, we, we grew wheat and we grew maize. You know, we, we grew soya beans. We grew everything. Um, so you had it, good agriculture already there. You know, at one stage, we were, we were known as the bread, the bread basket of Africa. I had no idea. Uh, absolutely. Huge, huge supply in, into Africa from our agricultural side. Um, but so, so we had, we had the agriculture in terms of producing the raw material. Um, and then we set up factories to do, 
things like milling and absolutely processing so anything to do with anything to do with grains milling the grains and turning them into what whatever product whether it's cereals or whether it's you know any any form of um, uh, sub substance that, that the that the country live off um, we the, the large majority of the population in 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 Zimbabwe as as with southern Africa live off a, a maize meal or a corn meal porridge um, like a, a thick porridge that they eat with eat with hands that so we call it sadza in South Africa they call it pup I think they call it ugali in Kenya there we go ugali yeah. in fact that's exactly right and they they you they that maize meal they then have with a relish. Um, and that relish that relish depends or varies on on the area of the of the country that they live in or the area of the continent they live in. Um, so in in we would produce all of that. We'd produce our own clothing because we'd grow we grew cotton. Um, so we'd set up our own mills. We produced our own shoes. We produced the the thing we didn't produce was was cars. But we then set up an assembly plant for cars, um, where we would have friendlier nations who, t- who kind of sanctions bust if you like um, they would send, send in um, kit, kits of cars through South Africa or through, through Mozambique and then we would, we would assemble them um, so we, we, we became self-sufficient wow so with, with the only thing that that, that, you, that um, sanctions really did was got everyone motivated to do it themselves instead of instead of waiting for someone to do it which would have been a good a good thing for a developing country and and it was i mean radisha under war under wartime uh, let's put the financial side to the financial side um out of this for now but um in terms of the war being on us and sanctions being honest on us it only promoted us to or prompted us to do all of these things ourselves so when when radisha was handed over in 1980 to the winners of of this conflict, um, Rhodesia or Zimbabwe was a self sufficient country. It had an infrastructure and schooling hospitals through the country, second to none in Africa. Really, second to none. And uh, electrification was ubiquitous. Absolutely, because we we put up a a huge hydroelectric power plant called Kariba, which is on the northern side of the country. Um, so that that was that was what the, one of the biggest steps wasn't wasn't planned to be the only step, was one of the biggest steps in terms of supplying power to the whole nation and still having enough power to export. When I was living in Kenya, there were huge sections of the country that still had no access to power, or if they did have it, was not regular. It was very irregular, yeah. which is what it is in Zimbabwe now. Wow. Yeah. Now now power is off eighteen hours a day. Eighteen hours a day. Every day. So people are running. When is the power on? Those six hours, normally from midnight until early hours of the morning. Oh, when there's very low demand. Mm. Yeah. Wow. But in in those days, it, there was never such a thing as a as a power cut. So you're in this country that is uh, working to become self sufficient, and yet there is internal conflict, and you join the military. Yes. And yeah. what are you after you're done training to become a paratrooper? What are you doing day in and day out? You mean whilst in the force? Yes, that's right. Um, well, we we operated a thing called Fire Force, and so what what would happen is we would be at a at a, a joint operational command, which was joint being Air Force and Army, and um, we would get a, uh, one of the other units would would have a, an observation point on a on a hill 
in in the middle of the bush somewhere and they would be looking at activity normal activity of our villagers and when they saw the activity change um, they would then monitor the change and why the change of activity had taken place and if it was seen to be um, uh, the opposition or the enemy's activity they would then radio fire force and we would come in by helicopters we'd circle them and we'd sweep sweep through the lines that, that we, we had seen them. So you were in real electric live situations. Oh, sure. Wow. And yeah. and for how many years did you do that? Um, about just over two years. And how did it come to conclusion? What what was the end? When did you stop? The war ended. And <laughs> so I guess maybe the better question is, how did the war build up and so what, find, what, reach a what, climax? What happened was, obviously, a solution to the Rhodesian situation was top of many governments' agenda. Um, and the reason being is because, obviously, there were a lot of British citizens who still lived in Rhodesia. So Britain, as much as they, as much as they might have had, a, had an issue with the government, they still had a lot of their citizens living within the country. You can see uh, a parallel with Hong Kong then, right? Now. Absolutely, absolutely. So because, because of that, Britain obviously continued to try and broker a deal between the parties that were involved. And... This ended up becoming a bit of a proxy war for in, in the Cold War, correct? Well, the the, the Cold War, from from an, another another slant to the whole thing, was the Americans because because the Americans um, scenario with with the USSR and and the Cold War and and communism and all the rest of it, um, they saw Africa or they, they certainly saw Cape, the Cape, the point in terms of going going around the base the base of Africa, as being strategically important. For shipping, um, for shipping, yeah, um, and and therefore didn't want to see the, didn't want to see the Chinese and the Russians spreading their influence and their and their power through to the whole of Africa. Um, Rhodesia, Rhodesia was was in a war anyway because of independence, and um, during that Cold War period, the American government would would certainly they certainly influenced movement of equipment and funds etc through South Africa into Rhodesia not always at, at this at the South African um, uh, government's uh, pleasure um, the South African government obviously had their, had their own their hands full with their own issues um, but but certainly certainly Rhodesia took advantage of, of everything they possibly could in terms of whatever they could acquire through a border they'd take it um, because like like anyone going through through a war, war costs it costs a lot of money, um, and so yes, they, they would they would accept South Africa's kindness in inverted commas, whether it originally came from America or came from South Africa themselves or wherever, would take a, take the kindness at a at a with open hands because it uh, it was so important. And so, but we. we I guess I don't have a great way to ask the question of you were describing for me before about how the forces of the Cold War kind of um, impacted this this area. Well, just just in in, in terms in terms of the, the war, the war happening and the war continuing, it, it can only continue as, lo- as long as there's money. Um, and so when, when the cold when the Cold War finished, basically the the tap that was supplying the money was turned off. Um, and you know whether that was a, a, a America's instruction or South Africa's instruction or a combination of the two, whatever whatever the whatever the case may be, we'll probably never know. 
Interesting. Um, we'll probably never know the, the, the true details of, of what transpired because I, I think they were, they were fairly complex and I think there were many, there were many governments uh, had to be, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Had to be appeased in the, in the, in the whole situation. Um, so I, I think it was a, was a fairly, fairly difficult thing. You know, that they, they went through, uh, the Rhodesian government went through many um, peace talks in, in inadverted commas, some initiated by themselves, some were, were initiated by the, by the English, some were initiated by the South Africans. Um, and who were they brokering peace between? Between the between the three factions. So you had Zapu, who were based in Zambia. That was, they were basically under Kenneth Kaunda. And I'm I'm being very basic, and I'm taking kind of towards the sure because I know of none of this. So then there was Zanla, or Z- or Zanu, who were initially being led by a gentleman by the name of Ndabaningi Satoli, and then later on by Robin Mugabe. Um, so they were they were based themselves in Mozambique towards the second half of the war, and Joshua Nkomo and his his uh, and his Zipra were based in Zambia. Um, so we, we were getting we were getting tackled from both both of those fronts, so from the north and from the east. Wow. Um, there were far less coming in from the west, which is where Botswana is, um, and very few coming in from South Africa. So. If they wanted to come through the bottom, the bottom half of, of Mozambique through the, um, through the, the eastern side of South Africa, then through into the, the southeastern border of, of Rhodesia of Zimbabwe, then they'd have to come through South Africa. South Africa excuse me, um, but mainly mainly they would come in from South, from Mozambique straight into Rhodesia. And are these uh, different groups? Are they coordinating? Are they working together? Or they have their own agenda and they are fighting each other as well? Fundamentally, they had their own agenda. But when 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 one when one would identify themselves to another one, that they, they wouldn't be infighting from there. Um, so now and again, you'd you'd come across a scenario where you had Zanla freedom fighters and Zipra freedom freedom fighters, and they'd be joined forces. They'd be joined joined against the Rhodesian forces. And do they have political parties that would be recognizable today, or no? Their platforms were totally different. No, that the, the what happened was they, they at independence they joined forces, and they all came under under the Zanu PF banner. The Zanu PF banner is still is still the banner of the ruling party today. And that's a communist group or a socialist, or would you describe it that way? Um, I think I think it initially started started off as socialist. Um, I'm not sure with with the whole of socialism going through the transitions that's done worldwide. You know how, how much their socialist agenda is still in place. Um, um, I wouldn't imagine, particularly. I think at this stage, at the at the moment, I think it's more of a survival <laughs> platform that they're on. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, absolutely. In in terms of in terms of governance of their country. Um, so I, I, w- I would imagine, you know, whether they call themselves capitalists or socialists at the moment, I think would be. Would be quite a, a tall order to be able to, to be able to quantify on on either side. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, to be so, honest. what what did end up making the violence stop? Why did people come to a detente and then sign some accords? Well, they 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 came up with a uh, they had a a Lank, what they call the Lancaster House talks. So this, this was obviously at, at some buildings called Lancaster House, and it this was in in the end of 1979, the beginning of 1980. And all the parties came forward. So the Australians, Australians were represented, uh, represented through 
through the whole thing of colonization and being a former colony themselves, etc. Obviously, the British government were there. Um, the the um, the three different faction leaders were there. So um, Ian Smith was there from the from the Rhodesian side. He was the Prime Minister of Rhodesia. Um, Robert Mugabe was there as the head of of Zanla, and and um, Joshua Nkoma was there as the head of Zipra. Um, so the the three of the, them came with their with their uh, with their delegates with their entourage, and uh, uh, it was basically set then for for elections. Um, so an election election date. So was they, set. the decision that they came to was let's just run another let's what, run what, an election. one man one man one vote. Okay, so tell me what what why that seems like all votes is that not correct? Okay, so in in the normal world. Everyone who's a citizen of the country gets to gets to cast a vote. Um, so in in colonized Africa, you found that 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 the black man, rightly or wrongly, was not entitled to a vote. Okay, so it it was it was very much a, a, a very biased um, election, if you like, because you know, the whites whites. Uh, and when I say whites, I'm being obviously being broad in terms of continentals, and you know, in, anyone non-black would get to vote, and the blacks would not get to vote. So was that right or wrong? Well, cer- certainly on the on the surface of things, it was very wrong. Um, and I'm certainly not a, in a position to you know to say whether you know my my belief was it was 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 it right or wrong as a child. Um, but we we just we just. What, was the, what would have been the case that somebody would have made on the other side of that, that, that the ruling of just white people voting would be the right way to go? I, th- I, think, the, I think that the thinking behind it um, was that, and, and you, see it in, in, you see it in countries where there's a large peasant population, where if you don't believe that the, that the people have the ability to think of who they would like as a leader because their, their livelihood just doesn't revolve around um, leadership or, or who should be in a leadership position. Um, then one kind of comprehends the whole scenario, was, uh, scenario of let the, let the educated, in inverted commas, the educated people vote because they'll, they'll make the right choice rather than people who actually don't have a clue about who should be in power and who shouldn't be in power and what, what they'll bring with them if they do get in power. And I think that, that was... I think that was that was the underlying um, reason for it. Um, you, you still see, you still see in a, in a lot of a lot of countries where there's um, a huge peasant population, China, for example, um, where where there's a, a lot where, where the rules are slightly different to the rules that we would know in, a, in an educated in an educated country where we where we make the assumption that everyone who is 18 or 17, whatever the, the legal voting age is. That they are educated enough to make a a fairly educated choice in terms of who leads them. Well, I guess that that uh, that's probably the reasoning behind mandatory public education in the United States, yes. thinking that if you don't have an educated population, then they they can't participate in the government process, or if they do and they're uneducated, then they may be a danger to themselves. Indeed. Okay. So I, I think I think it was a, a lo- along those lines. Um, you know, I think we, we would. We, you may have someone else sitting here that says, "No, it was just totally racist." Um, I honestly couldn't say yes, it was, or no, it wasn't. Um, you know, I was I was growing up at the at the end of the war. I was nineteen. 
And the tensions between people that weren't in military organizations, people living in cities, did, did they get along when, when uh, the uh, war was going on? Absolutely. Or? I mean, I think it's like, like, like every population. The majority of people get on really well, but you then have you then have those small percentage of people who will either create issues for the for the sake of creating them, or seeing so, something from an, another perspective that they then are trying to get other people to buy into, um, and that they would then saying I think if I said cause trouble would be wrong, but certainly want to want want their voices to be heard. Um, what what your what what certainly what I found in in my travels through Africa um, is that the Zimbabwean, the, the ethnic Zimbabwean person is the most wonderful, absolutely wonderful person there is on the planet. They are hospitable, friendly, want to help you wherever they can, um, not afraid of work. They're great people. Um, so was, was there a sense of unity within the country? And in terms of the different races, absolutely there was. Um, but I'm talking about normal, normal people of all ethnic backgrounds. Yeah, that weren't mm-hmm. in the struggle to say we either we want change or we absolutely. Or we want, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And so once the accords are signed, and then they decide one person, one vote, then they have a vote. Was that surprising outcome that Robert Mugabe, who's no, now a pretty infamous figure yeah. in the Western world, absolutely, was it surprising that he came to power? Well, no, I don't, I don't think it was. Um, I think I think the surprise was that we were all uh, people within the cities were all reassured that things would carry on as normal. Um, so when Mugabe came in, there was obviously there was panic, um, and when I say panic, there wasn't you know everyone fleeing for the border. You know that the same day, um, but but certainly there was a there was an exodus of um, white or skilled personnel um, because not too long before in 1972, I think if my memory is correct, when um, Sir Michel gained power in Mozambique when he got rid of the Mozambicans, he he was a lot a lot more harsh on the Portuguese nationals. Um, in terms of acquiring possessions, acquiring land, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and I think that the whites in in Rhodesia to become Zimbabwe um, were wondering if the same fate would be would be coming their way, looking looking across the border at Mozambique. Um, so that that was a worry, and, and yes, there were a lot of people that that, that then did leave the country. Um, and when I say people, I mean people of, of all sorts of all sorts of ethnic backgrounds, you know, not not just whites fleeing because they were, they were wondering now what this new black president or prime minister was going to do, um, but just worried just worried about the unknown. And once he did come to power, Mugabe, uh, you know, I know of this name because it's spoken with, uh, you know, he's probably put in the same category as. Um, uh, somebody from North Korea or the yep. Shah of, of Iran or something like mm-hmm. that, but I, I know very very little about him. What did he do once he came to power? Well, Mugabe, and, and in truth, and this this must must never be questioned. Mugabe himself was an incredibly intelligent person, um, but he had also signed he had also signed over a, a constitution at Lancaster House that uh, that protected the infrastructure for the first twenty years. Um, so every, everything that was in place remained in place for 20 years. So 
what 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 happened was and and correctly and this and this was certainly a feather in, in everyone's cap prior to prior to independence the Rhodesian dollar was not didn't have any value in the world market because of sanctions okay so as soon as sanctions was was declared against Rhodesia, and as soon as Rhodesia had its own currency because it could no longer have the pound, um, the Rhodesian currency was declared um, worthless on the international market. So when, when, when independence was, was achieved, the currency was still worthless on the international market because it couldn't just suddenly appear on the international market and not be... Have value, right. Correct, and not have value. So... We went through a, a process called economic, the Economic Structural Adjustment Program, which was a program set in place to float the Zimbabwean dollar and see where it, where it would float. So it was, it was getting, getting the, the Zimbabwean economy and the GDP and everything to such a state as to when we did release the Zimbabwean dollar onto the international market, it would have some some value attached to it. And the money that you had in your bank account uh, when you were a soldier, it had some amount of value, right? It could go buy goods and services. Oh, sure. And locally, yeah. And so then the concern was, okay, once we put you back into the international world, will your money be worth monopoly money or yeah. will it be worth something? I mean, de- having too high of an inflation would be really tough right yeah. you, so yeah. what, what ended up happening so the, the the economic structural adjustment program that that was a tough part because it was it was about it was about a self a self-rectifying uh, mechanism where where the the production from the from the country what the what the company was producing and exporting and importing where where those balances were um, and when when it actually when we did float the the Zimbabwe dollar it ended up as four Zimbabwean dollars to one US dollar which wasn't wasn't bad at all considering considering what we had come from um, and so that that was that was incredibly positive so the people who le- had left the country in in terms of this whole scenario of Mugabe coming into power and and them leaving and say we're not gonna not gonna live under a black president or black prime minister what whatever he was at that stage I think he was a prime minister um, they were now looking back and saying, you know, did we make the wrong decision? You know, should we have left or should we have stayed? Um, and so for, for a, a decade after that process had been put into place, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe thrived. The farmers thrived, mining, mining, both mining and, and agriculture was, was right up there. Um, people coming in, tourism was, was at, a, at, a, at an all-time high um, it, it was it was a very very good time, although very short. Was a very good time for Zimbabwe. This is almost a surreal experience for me because I, I you know, it's like waking up and finding out that all these people in this country had all of these experiences. And wherever you're going with this story, I have no idea. Uh-huh. I, I have no concept for what's about to happen next, <laughs> where we end up. Yeah. So what? What uh, sadly, what what then happened was in in September 19, 1997, the war veterans who in, who were involved in Zanlan Zipra against uh, the Rhodesians, they wanted their pensions because they were still waiting for their pensions from nineteen eighty, and this sadly is where is now where the country falls apart. So the the decision by the by the Zimbabwean government was then well we'll just print more money. Oh, okay. so they printed more money. 
to be able to pay the pensions to pay, to pay the, vin, the the veterans pensions. and was it a lot were there a lot of was veterans 20, 20 billion it was 20 billion redemption dollars that's how far it? behind they were on their liabilities mm. and so they said we'll just print it print the money and pay them whoa Okay, so you saw an immediate devaluation of the of the Zimbabwean dollar. The moment they announced it, or or how how quickly does this shock through, well, through the system? Well, lit- literally, literally the, the next day, it said there was a devaluation of the of the Zimbabwean dollar. They must have known that, right? Didn't everybody know that? No, certainly, certainly we didn't. We, I, I remember I was doing some work in the Victoria Falls at the time, and uh, it, we suddenly got this news, and uh, your dollar had gone from. Your Zimbabwean dollar had gone from four to one to eight to one in one night. Whoa! Mm. You know, so this this trend continued. So every every time there was something to pay, it was a case of print more money, print more money, print more money. I was about to say when you were talking earlier that that when you had gone to four to one and your currency to the U.S. dollar, that during wartime it must have been incredibly tempting to have printed a whole bunch of the even the even, currency. For, even for the for the local market right and and they and they ended up having some level of restraint absolutely and then to give in to that temptation mm. we see but you see comp- completely different players so the the players the players that were in place during the war and I'm talking about the government players were completely different people to the, the people that the, that were in part that were came into government from 1980 so all of all of those positions, even though even though you might have had the old minister or deputy minister or secretary in place for a, a short period after independence, they would all have been working their way out. So do you, by, re- do by, you remember where you were when you heard that your currency had been devalued? Is it was it that pivotal of a moment? Well, that that first that first um, that first devaluation, I know exactly where I was. I was at, Maca- at the Macarthur Sun in Victoria Falls. What were you, how, you listened to it on the radio or how yeah, did you hear about it? I heard it on the radio. Because I, as I'm thinking about you describing that, that would be finding out your net worth and your future earning potential had just been cut in half. Uh, but it didn't stop there. So by the end of the year, it was 32 to 1. Oh, God. Hmm. Over, over the next 10 years, over the next 10 years of, of this scenario carrying on, it got to a stage at the beginning of at the, when it finally crashed, where where the, the exchange rate was one quintillion to one. So that's one with twelve noughts behind it, to one US dollar. How, how did anyone survive? You couldn't buy anything. Virtually, you couldn't. My my salary then I was in a in a group group operation group group operations director's position for three five star hotels. My salary was worth two hundred US dollars a month. Oh my God! Mm. And that was in in that position, which should have been, you know, it should have been considerably more than yeah, that. thousands. But, yeah. uh, but that's what it was. And I'd have to the BBC. BBC launched a released a figure the other day, a little while ago, when when they were talking about the, the height that they were comparing Mnangagwa's rule and Mugabe's rule. Mnangagwa is a, is a current president. Um, and they were saying it at the highest of this before the crash, inflation was running at over one billion percent a month. A month. That's what it, that's what it was. You'd never catch up with that. It's, it's got, once one month of that is impossible. it's over. Yeah, impossible. So then the, the Zimbabwean dollar crashed, and they then adopted the U.S. dollar as in in two thousand and eight they adopted the U.S. dollar as as the currency. 
and that was basically used used as a currency for the next decade. Did that mean that basically everyone said we're starting over? Correct. I mean, because you would have no savings, your banks yeah. would have all no... banks. Banks were leveled anyway. So yeah, they any, couldn't. Any they couldn't the have been trading was, anything. Was anyway. Were there banks there at all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, still doing their best to to work with what they had to work with, um, which was incredibly difficult because you can imagine any foreign currency com- coming into the country was being hoarded because there was the only way to retain some value in what you had was by having U.S. dollars what, or, or what, pounds. How or, do you go to the... Because this would have been the time of credit cards. How do you go into the grocery store? How are you have, buying wouldn't, wouldn't have, in, in, in In my life, until the time I moved to South Africa, there was no such thing as a credit card. You couldn't get it. You couldn't get a credit card. You couldn't work with the bank's money. So if you went you to the a, store... You could have to a debit get, card. Okay. But, but never a credit card. Okay. So you could have a debit, debit card, but... Um, you would use your debit card, but as as things accelerated, so they became more and more worthless. So it became worth, worth not worth having. How, still had how, them. how do you buy groceries in a in a billion percent inflation? Well, you remember world? You, you have you have a banknote that's also a quintillion or a quintillion dollar banknote. <laughs> you, you carry them around in a box or in a rucksack or in a wheelbarrow and something. Genuinely, mm-hmm. like you're not exaggerating. You no, really are car- carrying them in wheelbarrows. Not at all. And then these stores are just saying, we'll take, m-. I mean, or, or do people well, start you'd, doing. You'd, you'd scale it. So you'd, knew what, you'd know what what a million dollars weighed for, for argument's sake. So you'd, you'd have a scale and you'd put, the, you'd put the block of money onto the scale. And that's how you'd know what the value of the money was. You wouldn't try and start counting out the notes. How. I mean, I'm trying to put myself in this place. It would seem so hopeless. I, I would imagine that that would absolutely hopeless. So at the at the end of it, the end of when the when the Zimbabwe dollar crashed at this quintillion to one scenario, you would go into the into the supermarkets. There would be no no food in the supermarkets. The shelves would be empty, absolutely empty. And and that's in true for you too. The the manager of hotel absolutely. So you'd have to with a with a hotel because you're earning foreign currency from from people coming to stay. You then you then have some foreign currency in your foreign currency account. So you, you'd bring in you'd bring in essentials obviously with the foreign currency that you had that you had managed to get that government government had allowed that you're able to then buy, purchase various commodities for your for your customers for your guests. And the people that didn't have that kind of access to foreign currency. Were they bartering a lot? Were they figuring out new ways of doing the so all economy? You, all, you, all you could do, because you, everyone, everyone traded. So what you'd do is, is with, with your Zim dollars, you'd buy US dollars. So you'd, you'd pay a premium for them at the time, knowing, of course, in a week or two weeks or whatever, it would no longer be a premium. So you'd hold on to your US dollars as much as you possibly could and then sell them on the black market so you could then, you could then at least buy what you could buy or use use your US dollars to buy what you couldn't buy anywhere else. Um, so yeah, it, it just it just became a, a game, you know. But we, one one survives, one kind of gets gets through it and and moves on to the next chapter. But um, so just a few weeks ago, I had on um, an investment portfolio manager, and we were talking about how much money the US government has been printing. And uh, I wish I would have had this conversation in my back pocket because I can only imagine inflation on a theoretical level hmm. that's like what you're describing and I've never even it never even crossed my mind I mean to be to be weighing things like a million I mean you're essentially saying it's the it's worth less than the paper it's the, it's far less than the paper's printed on 
Wow. Hmm. And you hear about this happening in um, in Germany, you know, During right, the Second World War. Right. Hmm. But I'd never heard about this. Well, in, in comparison, Zimbabwe, that uh, the German scenario fades into insignificance. Oh, it's worse. Oh, far worse. Far worse. In the in the German scenario, what 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 would happen in Zimbabwe? You'd you'd throw away the money and you'd keep the wheelbarrow. Huh. Get rid of the money because it's actually worthless. The yeah. wheelbar- the wheelbarrow's got some real worth. The money doesn't. So when they pegged it to the dollar, was that something that the U.S. was like, "Yeah, go ahead," or or, or did we, they actually just start using? They denominated started, everything. Started in using a dollar. So that's just like dollar. Panama. The yeah. the country of Panama yeah. does that, or at least they did it when I was there. Mm. So they then would just adopted the U.S. dollar as a currency, which would then make U.S. dollars even more valuable than they would be in the United States, which would make it very difficult to get into that game. Yes, yeah, but but everyone did because what what happened was there, there was people had been hoarding, so what happened was it just became exposed. So because the, before, were you not allowed to to no, use? You weren't allowed to have the U.S. dollars. How did you pay your taxes? What taxes? I don't think uh, you know. It, I think it got to such such a stage, such a state where I, I'll give. In fact, I'll give you an example that might put the taxes into a bit of bit of perspective. Like all of us, or like mo- most of us, we're working people. You'd buy a home and you'd pay for the home over over a twenty year period. Um, if you can if you can purchase it quicker than that, well, you're doing well. But most people will get to kind of their twenty years and ha- and have a home, or they'll borrow against their payments so they'll have a second mortgage and they'll, they'll just carry on buying which is which is the normal way so you can imagine now bef- before this hyperinflation started i i would go to the bank and i would ask for a hundred thousand dollar loan to buy a house okay and i'd start off paying paying my mortgage paying my bond what, what whatever the terminology is here and i'd pay my three thousand dollars a month over the next 20 years and so it would happen now you can imagine once this hyperinflation started, I still only owed the same amount of money. Right, as long as you didn't have a floating interest rate, That's you were right. good. <laughs> so what would happen is, is at the end of the day, I could pay my house off with one day's pay. Whoa! Because it was still only worth a hundred thousand. So all the people holding debt were screwed. Absolutely. Yeah. Because wow, you know, so you, you can you can just imagine. They couldn't. They couldn't increase the price of the house. The house was sold right at that amount. Of you money. already signed it. So as yep. long as you didn't have a variable floating interest rate, mm-hmm. wow. Yep. So that would have uh, meant the transfer of a huge amount of property from for, ne- for next to nothing. Wow. So who who would have been buying that up? Obviously, the banks would have been right. The banks would have been buying up a lot of, a lot of property, knowing that. Their money's the, the the safest their money's going to be is in is in land because you can't move it and you can't inflate it exactly yeah. land and bricks and mortar. So that's that's what you know people who could afford it that's what they did. Does this leave scars on you? I mean, as far as the way you think about money or the way you think about stability, because I would just how could you ever trust a, a paper bill again? It's got to look very different to you. I think I think what it what it what it does do it it certainly makes you. Um, Look at things in more detail before you before you get involved in them, um, because you you certainly you certainly have those scars. You certainly have learned a lot of lessons, um, and you've certainly learned not to trust what's given to you on face value, um, and t- to look to look deeper before you make any form of commitment to any any form of decision um, in your life. 
Um, c- certainly that, that happens. Certainly that happens. Is the U.S. Uh, dollar still used in Zimbabwe? Absolutely, yeah. And, and that is their currency then? No. The, the currency now is back to the Zimbabwean bond note. Um, so that's, that's what they've reintroduced, which, which, is, which is right. I think what, what, what Munangagwa, the current president, is trying to do is, is form a, a mini ESAP where he's tightening all the, all the apron strings, tightening, tightening all the belts, um, and, and trying to get very close to the spending, um, while at the same time trying and offer incentives to... Uh, the farmers to the miners, et cetera, et cetera, on on their on what they're able to bring back in, and whatever they're able to bring back in, make sure that they're looked after in terms of an, uh, uh, a foreign currency amount and being able to ex, ex, uh, um, expatriate that foreign currency amount. Um, so yes, I, I I actually as as much as of a negative press that Munangag was getting, uh, because he is like like anyone who would be in his situation would be. I actually think that he is doing his his very best to to sort out forty years of issues as quickly as he can, and I think I think he's been in power a year now. Um, I don't think it's much longer than that. Um, and in the, in that year, years a very very short time to to untangle all of these issues. But I, I do believe that he's he is doing his best. Um, I. We don't have to stay on this topic the whole time, no. but I am interested in this. As I'm hearing you talk about, you know, 30 years of, of uh, or 40 years of, of really difficult times, a huge percentage of that with wild inflation. Yes. How did Mugabe stay in power all that time? I, I said earlier that Mugabe was a very very intelligent man, mm-hmm. which, which he is. And, and Mugabe surrounded himself with people who, who had taken advantage of the system as much as he had. So their pockets were also very well lined. Um, so we had the, the, head of, the, he, the head of a lot of the uh, paramilitary were, were probably pretty much the same, uh, but all, all the way down to undersecretaries and junior secretaries in government, etc. Yeah, I mean, dictators don't just get to be in charge because they're in charge. Yeah. They pay out patronage, and Correct. as long as the money keeps flowing to those... They keep having it come back to them. So exactly, exactly that situation. So he was he was very well he was very well um, in control of of the military, um, and the military were very very much behind Robert Mugabe. At, you know, at the end of the day, he was he started off as party secretary, but then became party chairman of of Zanla. Zanla forces were the biggest forces um, on the on the freedom fighters side. You know, they they were the biggest force. So those those freedom fighters largely went then into into normal structured army at the, at the end of the war. And they were then basically the army that, uh, that he ca- continued to control. But how do you pay an army with no currency? They always paid. Yeah, I mean, they are always they paid. They were always paid. But they were paid in, in denominated, probably they, they just keep printing money and... Just keep doing, just keep going around. And in a way, I guess uh, once you have wild currency inflation, then it becomes a matter of relative wealth, right? Mm. It's... Do you have three pounds of of, uh, of notes versus somebody that has two? The person with three still has a, lo- a third more yeah, than the other. Third more than you do. Yeah. But also, also remember, remember, you know that they have they had weapons, and the weapons always had ammunition. You know, and, and the, a big thing in, in a lot in a lot of in a lot of these countries where there's an uprising, if you like, there'll be a lot of weapons, but there won't be a lot of ammunition. 
Oh, I didn't know this. Well, that, the ammunition is far more difficult to acquire than the weapon is. Yeah, you only need one weapon. You need as many rounds as you need to do the fighting. Absolutely. So, if you don't have if you don't have ammunition, you've got a club. That's really all you've got is a big stick. Um, so, although you you may find that people who now are trying to revolutionise, whether it was Zimbabwe in those days or whether it's another country in the world, if they revol- if they're revolutionising people so that they're, they're now arming the peasants it's got to be there's got to be continuation to it because otherwise the army will then just eradicate whoever whoever comes up against them and so that was exactly the same in zimbabwe the army always had ammunition it never crossed my mind that if you had a scenario of inflation as long as you control the army and keep them going, that's who you've done. You, you've you've effectively created a situation where the mountain is too slippery for anybody else to get to up. climb up. Yep. So you know, so it, it didn't it didn't matter if the, if there were pockets here and pockets there because they would just be squashed. And as this is all going on, did you have the ability to move from Zimbabwe to other places? I mean, you've Absolutely. built an international career. Yeah. So we when we. I got married to to my wife, and we had two children, Alex, who you know, um, and and Alex has a sister who's sixteen months older than him. And we we looked at what what was in front of us. Um, we looked at where I was in my career, looked at where where my wife was in her career, and we decided that as long as that the education system in Zimbabwe, which has always been exceptionally high, um, as long as as long as that was working for our children. We would stay where we are, and we would we would endure what was in front of us, uh, which which is what we did. Um, and our children subsequently finished finished very well at school. Mm-hmm. Those self same schools today are still running exceptionally well. What do you attribute that to? Well, the educational system and and people who have a belief in teaching and in, in terms of in terms of passing on the correct skills for for children and their lives going forward. Um, so that we have. We 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 learn the the English we under the English system of schooling, um, so we do O levels and A levels, and then um, uh, those are exams to tell yeah, you yeah, which direction are, you should go yeah. in. So th- we don't do SATs, for example, mm-hmm. um, but um, you know to get into university here, as you well know, you you write your SATs, and de- depending on your result, you're either accepted or not not accepted. Whereas there, what happens? You write your your A level examinations, so you you would have four different subjects, or three, or two, or six, whatever you believe that you are going to, you are good enough to write, and you then wrote your exams, and they'd then be sent to the UK to be marked, and then then come back to you. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So it's and they they hold they hold a lot of a lot of merit. So if you have A levels in in an English schooling system. It's it's the it's the advanced level. It's it's as high as you can go in terms of your schooling system. So while you had financial inflation, you didn't have grade inflation. Yeah. So so the students were able to move on and yeah, move up. Absolutely. And uh, and so, so you that was were, our reason for staying. So you stayed and then traveled to build this uh, hospitality career. Or you did it mostly in Zimbabwe. I did it mostly in Zimbabwe. Um, however, once once two thousand two thousand seven came along and I could no longer afford to. I could no longer afford to work because savings had obviously gone into children's schooling and it, all all the things that that needed to be done. I then I then left formal formal employment and I started teaching. I started consulting um, in different countries in South, South Africa, for example, and in Ethiopia, 
um, in Tanzania, in Kenya, you know, various countries in Botswana, Namibia. Um, because what I could do is I could earn hard currency and, and use the hard currency to, to, to go back um, to Zimbabwe. Um, Zimbabwe, by that stage, in terms of the hospitality side of things, was, was hitting rock bottom. Yeah, not of, a lot of people wanting to visit yeah, with Mugabe and because power of what was what was yeah. what was going happening in the country. So you know, in in terms of staying staying in Zimbabwe, it 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 would be fine in my position, but my position would be coming would be less and less um, viable in terms of what 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 I was controlling. Right. You know, the gen, the general managers could could far easy would be far easier for them just to run their units. They wouldn't. They really wouldn't need me in place. And on top of that, so. You know, it was a case of getting out and consulting. And now you have this kind of pan-African uh, career. You you live part of your time in South Africa, is that right? I live most of my time in South Africa. So what, what I did, with the, the, there's always a silver lining. And um, Vance, what I did was I, through all of these travels, I started observing the poor people in, in each of these countries. And I, I visited... Eritrea. I did some work in Djibouti. I visited southern southern Sudan, northern Somalia, um, the D- southern part of the of the DRC, Lumbambashi. Um, These are pretty rough areas. Uh, tough areas. Yeah. And what a lot of lot of malnourished people. And through 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 all of this, I, I started pondering what what would be a way of delivering to people a um, a highly nutritious meal that had a shelf life where you didn't need to have a refrigerator. You were able to consume it without having to have a stove or a microwave or a, a gas top, or a, uh, but you could just have a, a pot of boiling water on, a, on top of a fire or just eat it as it was. Um, so I, I, had these, I had these thoughts going through my head in terms of how do I develop a product? I spent, from the age of 15, I did my, chef, my chef's, City and Gill's chef's diploma. Um, you know, I did. I'm, I'm a qualified baker in in, in really? hotels. Absolutely. So bakery patisserie was a, a kitchen craft that I had in in hospitality, and I thought with, with these skills that I have and with the, with the people that I've seen and with with the background that I have, I must be able to come up with something. Um, and it it was in my head for a long time, and it was in, in my head for for selfish reasons, and as much as I wanted to make sure I could patent the product before I before I exposed the product. Um, obviously, with a, with a with a, an insight that I was obviously out there to make a little bit of money for myself as well. Hey, I'm I'm total believer so, in capitalism. So, That's so, how you make better ideas, yeah. right? So, once my children had both been through university and both completed university, I then thought it was time to expose this and get uh, get a patent on it. So, South Africa would be the, the most natural place to do it because South Africa has the highest disposable income of of any African country in Africa. Um, and it's especially that the province that I moved to, which was is called Gauteng, and the the two major cities in that province are Johannesburg and Pretoria. Mm-hmm. Johannesburg, I think, is probably more well known than Pretoria is, but uh, Pretoria is one of the capitals of South Africa, along with Cape Town. But Johannesburg's the the biggest the biggest city, um, and also has the most wealth. Um, so I exposed my product to to a couple of guys, friends of mine who are also ex-Zimbabwean. One, was, one had become a patent lawyer and the other one had become a fairly successful uh, businessman. And they felt that the product was, was worth investigating and worth pursuing. 
So to that end, we developed a product that we called in, in South Africa, we called a sudza stick or a pup stick, or in, in Kenya it would be called a... I don't know. What, what's the name for maize meal? For oh, yeah, maindi choma. So like, it, well, that, no, that's more, oh, the ugali is so what would, you're talking about. it would about. be an ugali stick. Ugali, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, and what, what it is, is we, we, cook, we cook corn into, into stiff porridge. Um, which is but, but just yes. to clarify, when yes. people in the U.S. corn meal is something that's very rare. People don't have it very often anymore. It's a the the maize in Africa would be it's really kind of hard, and then you have to boil it and then add. Okay, all right. So so what what hap- what happens in, in Africa? In ninety percent of Africa that eat maize or eat corn, is the maize the maize is harvested, and it, and it and it's dried. It's, I guess the only thing I'm trying to describe, because yes. people won't know, is that in the U.S., when you eat corn, you eat sweet corn. Whereas in in Africa, you're eating a different... It's corn, but it's different. It's a grain. It's yes. almost like eating... Like, like a, eating rice. Like eating rice. Yes. That's right. Yes. yes. So, so what we do with this, with this maize, with this corn, is we mill it. So we, we mill it down so it's like a powder. Um, and it, but it's a white powder, because 90% of the maize that, that, we, that we grow is, is white maize. Um, the, the indigenous population does not like eating yellow maize; they like eating white maize. So, we, we, when it's dry, we and it's, it, it becomes a grain, as you correctly say, and we then mill the grain like like you can mill rice or you can flour, yeah, know, mill it any any of those things. We, we mill them. Um, yeah, wheat wheat is probably the easiest example here because milled milled corn looks very much like flour. Mm-hmm. Um, with that milled corn, we then we then cook it on the stove with water and a little bit of salt and we cook it into a stiff porridge okay that product is then called sadza or called pup um, and it's it's that's then eaten with with your hands and you eat it you you take you take it in your hand and you then put some relish on it and you'd eat the relish and the and the maize meal together yeah and and my experience with ugali is yeah. one time i was doing um i was with the peace corps yeah. and we would eat ugali with every meal yes. because the people oftentimes don't have enough food to be able to go to bed feeling full at yeah. night so they eat this paste and it doesn't i mean it has some calories in it but it's not it's not a lot but they would eat it right before they went to bed so they could feel full yeah and there was one time we were putting on a fancy dinner where we had goat and we had avocados and we had all these things yeah. and uh, we get done with the meal and everyone is looking around saying, yeah, but where's the ugali? Yeah, because yeah. it's so central to their diet Absolutely. that they don't think of it as yeah. like a, it is a core mm. uh, part of their culture. Yeah. So in, in, in terms of, you're hundred percent right. In, in term, in terms of the, the nutritious, the nutritional side of, of maize meal, it's your carbohydrate source. It's your complex carbohydrate mm-hmm. source. And a, as a complex carbohydrate source, depending on how refined it is, like, like anything that we eat, uh, depending on how refined it is, will depend on how empty those calories are or how nutritionally dense those calories become. Mm-hmm. If it's less refined, obviously through the fiber and through, through the, the, lack of, the lack of processing, the carbohydrate has more value to it. The more refined it gets, the less the less nutritional value it'll mm-hmm. have. So yes, it could there could then be very empty calories, as as you were saying earlier. Right. Um, so we, we would we would what we what we do is we we take the maize meal that's popular for the area. Um, so if what what would happen in a, in a holistic scheme? So try and we try and look at this holistically. We'd locate a factory near a growth point. 
So the growth point would be where there's a community that's growing because there are some there are some indigenous farmers in the area. Um, they would grow the maize. They'd bring the maize to me. I would then mill the maize for them. I'd give them back what they wanted in terms of milled for their own use. For their own use, right? Their, their own, then I would I would then take maize meal, and I would I would then have a relish um, recipe that I would then make the relish recipe. I would extrude the maize the cooked maize meal and the cooked relish into a into a tube into a six centimeter diameter tube and I'd seal the tube at both ends. Now this tube is food, has food, food grade plastic. It has anti-UV uh, rays, um, and obviously no oxygen gets in. So by doing that, I then increase the shelf life, and uh, sorry, and I pasteurize it. Um, so having, having these, these things in place reduces the amount of, of um, preservative or emulsifier that I have in there, and I get a two-month unrefrigerated shelf life on a product that they are very very knowledgeable it's about. it's already cooked it's already cooked this is unbel- that this is amazing it's a very good idea and it follows along with an argument that i've uh, tried to make here in the us which is most people here have no concept of how much time it takes to make food mm. because if you're making ugali it's not like you get to go turn on the stove. No, you draw up water, yeah. maybe from a well if you're mm-hmm. rich, but likely from a river somewhere yeah. far away. You bring Three, that back. Away, yeah. Then you've got to put this cold water on a on a pot. And it's not like you have some great high quality grade pot that you then put on a fire or maybe a Jico. Maybe you have a little bit of charcoal that yeah. somebody yeah. in your neighborhood makes. You boil that water. And then you put the ugali in it. And it takes a while. And you, uh, It takes you, another, it, another half an hour. That's right. And then that's only your carbohydrate right yeah. if you've got beans yeah. you've got to sit there and hand any, pick any them. form of relish you've and now got to start processing the vegetables cooking the vegetables giving the vegetables a little bit of taste getting a chili processing the chili putting a bit of chili in with a tomato and onion for example and you get no benefit of i'm going to open up the refrigerator because i cut up too much onion yesterday none of it's there none of it's there. and there's no, there's no fridge there if you've no. spent the day working which I, I was in an unusual i stayed with a kenyan family for about 10 weeks before i moved out into the countryside both the mother and the father worked yes so that did not start until after sunset mm-hmm. and it's you're like my home that I was living in, they had a single light bulb and they could maybe have a lantern. But if you're doing this inside, you're now sitting with charcoal smoke going around in your house, Mm -hmm. one light. Yep. It is difficult. I mean, they get along fine. I don't, I don't want to say they're sitting there, you know, just waiting for somebody to save them. However, if you were to offer them a product that they could have access to those calories without having to cook them, you would be giving them back years of their life yep literally absolutely and and it, it was with with all of the sinking in, in place so for example the guy if he's a miner if he's working all down the mine um, which which is what a lot of you go to mm-hmm. you go to southern drc where lumbabashi is and you've got the big cobalt mines you've got forty thousand people working those mines each of those mines mm-hmm. no food right and if you're not married the best you're going to do is somebody happens to sit outside of where you're at and they're making the the ugali themselves. Yeah. Or you're eating something on the way home. Wow. Like a piece of fruit. Or... Right. Okay, so so what, what through through all of these experiences... I had no idea this is what you did. This is, mm, this is very, this very is my, interesting. This is my, my retirement project. <laughs> so, anyway, but um, 
So with, with with all of these various experiences I ha- I had obviously so this, this it had to it had to be something that I produced that ticked all the boxes for a lo- and I'm going to u- I'm going to use the word low level employee because that that's really what 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 it was in my in my mind someone who couldn't afford either w- whether it regard to time or whether it re- was money on purchasing purchasing western products at, at three four times the price of what he could possibly afford or not having the time when he finished work and he then had to walk 10ks home and then start going through the process that, you, that you've described so there's that there's that section to it there's the other section to it where you now have people who have lost everything as, as we see in africa many times and they don't have any food, and and for them to get a meal, and there's nobody coming to save them. There's no, no there's nobody that's them. just going to no. drop in enough food for them to live on. Absolutely. For, yeah. And and when you do get feeding programs, what generally happens, and I'm I'm I am generalizing here. I'm sure there's some that have been modernized slightly, but what happens is is sacks of maize meal will be delivered to a school or a clinic, and. Uh, uh, 20 kgs of tomatoes and 20 kgs of onions and you know five kgs of garlic and whatever else they can they can kind of get together and then what happens is the parents will then try and cook this this maize meal into into the product we we spoke about on a fire in a big pot or on a on a gas burner in a big pot um and some some of the other the other mothers will be now cutting up onions and tomatoes and the rest mm-hmm. of it rape etc and um the unfortunate side with with all of that, you can imagine how much pilfage there is because people just don't have. So right. sacks of maize, maize meal will be disappearing. The when you cook when you cook maize meal because it's because it's such a stiff product to cook, you get a lot of crustacean at the bottom, a lot oh, of yeah. bur- burning oh, at yeah. the bottom. So you end up throwing probably about twenty percent of what you're cooking. You throw twenty percent away. And if you're a Peace Corps volunteer, it's about fifty percent because you don't probably. have any idea what you're doing. Exactly. So I burn that stuff yeah, onto yeah. the pan. And all you, the time. you then can't get rid of it. So yeah. like when it cools down, you then chip it out and you throw away this crust. You off. are describing yeah a lot of my time. And it, it happens. It happens. I thought it was just me. No, so. no, it happens with with everybody because they don't have stainless steel. They don't have all pan. Aluminium. They don't. Um, they maybe have butter every once in a while. Blue band is what yeah. they had in Kenya. Okay. Yeah, in 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 Zim, I'd, I'd think butter was probably very much a luxury. But yeah. It would probably be margarine that would then be supplied. That's in what bulk it was, margarine. It. That yeah. blue band margarine. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, so it had to check the boxes of if I if I was able to offer a nutritional alternative, it had to be something that was cooked, something that had a, a non refrigerated shelf life, something that could be open and eaten on the go. So whether it was to work or home from work, it had to be something that. Um, that there was no modern appliance needed to be applied, okay, but they could have a cooked, nutritious meal. The other, the other thing that, that obviously could be done was in the relish section, the center section, I'll, I'll show you a couple of pictures just now. In the center section is where you would then fortify the product. Ah. So the fortification would co- comes in an area where there's, a, there's taste already. So you're not, you're not tainting the product of the starch. You're putting you're putting the nutritional additive, if you like, the enhancement, the fortification. You're putting that into the relish where the taste is masked a lot, right? Um, because I don't know if you've ever had where you where you see these drums of, of vitamins and minerals waiting to be added to to a I don't know that I've ever seen that. Yeah, no. And you taste it; it tastes absolutely disgusting. 
So what are the types of when you say relish, what is it what is it going to be made out of? Or, I mean, local, depending on where you're at, does it change? Yes. So, yes. so let's talk about the places you're familiar with. So we, we do at the moment we do we do four four different relishes and two two different starches. We do a tomato and onion relish, which is as it, as it, the description is. We then do what's called the chakalaka relish, which is very much like the tomato and onion, but it has more vegetables and it has the pre- pro- the uh, predominant uh, vegetable in there is carrot. Um, so it takes on a on a carrot, tomato, onion garlic, mustard, that, that type of uh, mm-hmm. flavors. And then we, we have one that's a, that's a chili soya beef. So although it's soya, it's, it now it tastes incredibly like just like beef mince. Really? But with a, with a slightly chili, with a slightly chili, so it adds, adds, enhances the flavor, slightly chili uh, flavor with it. Um, and then we do what's called a, what, a non-savory one, a peanut butter and syrup. So I don't know if you've had peanut butter and syrup sandwiches when you were a kid. Yeah, of course. Yes, yeah, so exactly, exactly the same thing. So the starch of the maize meal is the bread, basically, and then the, the peanut butter and syrup is is the center. Peanut butter is uh, it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was a luxury there, but it was it was a nicer thing. Mm. But people loved Love it. Peanut butter and uh, and because all you need is mashed peanuts. And and salt yeah. and you have something absolutely, so you can, I can you, still taste the African peanut butter now and it's still absolutely delicious. Yeah, so you you can imagine that now for school children. So what what you're trying to now do is you you would then fortify the peanut butter and syrup with with um, vitamins and minerals. Okay, and they they wouldn't ta- they wouldn't taste right the, the vitamins and minerals at all. You'd be getting yes, yes, there would be sugar in it because of the syrup, absolutely, and there would be oil in it because of the peanut butter. But you are getting the nutrition from the peanuts, from the peanut butter. Obviously, people who can't eat peanuts, they, mm-hmm. they can't eat, eat that particular product. Um, but it tastes absolutely absolutely delicious. And it's ideal for school children getting some nutrition into their stomachs, either on the way to school or at break time or on the way home, where they may not get nutrition when they get home. Yeah, the thing that they had now was uh, hunks of sugar cane was about yeah. the best that yeah. they could get. And, and, and break really the bark and you eat yeah, it. Tear yeah, tear it. Yeah. yeah. So how, what level of production is this at right now? We've we've had to go through, obviously, as with, as with all food products, we've had to go through a process of certification. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, we've gone for, for the highest certification that there is out there, which is FFS, FFSC 22,000. Which is which is the top end of food production certification in terms of hygiene, safety, etc. Um, Me and then what would that allow you to do that a lower certification wouldn't let you do? Well, then you could sell it into anybody, anybody anywhere in the world. Oh, that now dealt with any humanitarian issues or normal issues in terms of uh, in terms of retail or wholesale, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And are there other products like this on the market right now? No. Because I never saw a pre-cooked ugali. So, so, is amazing. So, so what there what there is is there there is pre-cooked, pre-cooked pup, uh-huh. and and a, a piece of sausage that you'd find on a styrofoam tray in a supermarket. Right. That that for sure you'd see. So are we the first people to sell cooked? Maize no, no. Meal? But I mean, no. but packaged. But, but in terms of the way that we're doing it, no, there's no one else. So um, you you eat these now? You you have them? You, you you've, you've absolutely. Been yeah, absolutely. I'm 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 tired of eating them, but uh, yeah, they 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 very well received. Um, the the positive the, the couple of positive things are, are first of all anyone who's tasted them, you know, bar saying 
it could have more salt or less salt, which I think was, is, is everyone's preference. Right. Um, but bar, bar that, um, everyone has been incredibly excited about them. And everyone looking at it from a business perspective has, have, have just said, you know, how do we get involved? Um, so how long until you get the certification you need and then we can... Well, 30th, 30th of August was the first, was the first audit by, by the auditors for the, for the FSSC um, uh, okay. certification. Yep. Uh, so they, they, have a, they have a follow-up audit in a month, um, end of September. And then that certification will be done. Obviously, if, you know everything going well, which it should do. There's no reason it shouldn't. It's you know the doc the documentation is is always the difficult step. Uh, fortunately, the the factory is fine. The factory is passed. It's just making sure the documentation is where it should be. And then yeah, then it's ready to launch into every construction site, every mine, every feeding scheme. And how quickly can you get to that scale? I mean, you're talking even one mine with 40,000 people would be an would unimaginable be amount yeah. of... You see, what, what, would, what will... The, the natural thing that would happen is if, if uh, for example, let's call it... Let's use an easy example for, for this. Um, if we had World Food Program who said, listen, we, we like the product we need. We need 50,000 50, of these sticks a day. Okay. Well, obviously, we couldn't produce fifty thousand six a day. We could prob- probably produce half a million a month. Mm. Um, what we what we would then do to to raise finance to expand the factory would then be a simple process. Um, we know how to put the factory together, um, and you know, to raising the finance of, on the back of an order like a World Food Program, for example, would be a fairly simple thing to do um, to expand the factory. So very very quickly, you'd you'd come up to that specification, even if you couldn't initially. Right. Um, so with, within a month, you could you could certainly be providing them two thirds, and within a quarter, you'd be, be be able to provide them and another customer, for example. And you have um, an imagination that this will be scaled to a lot of locations because that a way lot of people countries. can bring their own yeah. their own uh, maize and then figure out the relish for the right area Indeed. that's for the indigenous. Absolutely, that's exactly correct. So inst- instead of instead of producing a product in Johannesburg. And putting it on trucks and, and sending it to two different locations, it makes far more sense putting factories in those locations. So you, you'd set up factories, hopefully where there, where there's a more holistic solution. So you'd put it as as mentioned before in a, in a growth point area, where you then bring you then bring the bring the factory in. We put it in, into stainless steel containers or stainless containers that have been have been fitted out with with stainless steel walls and floors and ceiling etc. And then you would have the one, the one area at the beginning of the of the, the production cycle that would be where your mill is. So you'd you'd take in stock from the local farmers. You then add value to it in the factory by putting it into, into these tubes, and then you'd sell it to the community on the other side. So you'd you'd be able or sell it to to neighbouring growth centres or neighbouring towns, etc. Um, so that way you'd you'd be incorporating all facets of the community. So the farmer would be involved, employment would be involved, sales would be involved. You'd have different people having different businesses. I mean, this is why capitalism is what it is, mm. right? It's 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 not just the person that came up with the idea that gets a benefit. If you start selling something people want, there it just grows and grows and grows Absolutely. the number of people that can benefit yeah. and yeah. Uh, and be in a better position mm. because of it. Yeah. So that so that's that's what we're doing. But yeah, like anything, it's it's been a long road. Uh, one never expected it to to take as long as it has because it's. The R and D. How long have you been working on this? About two years. 
Wow. Um, but R R and D is a is a is a something. How do you measure it? You know, you just you've got you've got to carry on going till it's right. Yeah, that's um, right. Initially, I did this in in um, with mechanical gears, which would be the the most commonsensical way of doing it. But as as a maize meal cools and it stiffens to get it through the tubes, is very very difficult. Um, so we 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 all we did was destroy. Destroy. I mean, it would be like trying to get sand, to, wet sand, to move Literally, through through a tube. As, as a, like concrete. I hadn't even thought about that. Like, that is like an engineering concrete. challenge. So, did you have engineers that you worked with to do this, or was it you? I know we we did we did for sure. But initially, we had forty five degree turns yeah. in, in the stainless steel tubing because it, you know that's how you kind of buy the tubes and then you fit them together and you know because you obviously try to do this as as much as, standardized as you absolutely, can. Absolutely, because right. you, you don't have this never ending budget. Um, and at 45, all we did, the sprockets were just shearing teeth. <laughs> you know, literally, it was, it was yeah. that bad. So we took the angles, as many of the angles out as we could. So we reduced the 45-degree angles to more like 30-degree angles. Um, so just it, it extended it slightly, but it was just the, the angles were softer. Um, and then in the, in the bottom of the, of the pots that fed the tube, fed the pipe at the bottom. Sorry, this might not sound too clear, but... Um, fed the pipe at the bottom. We put. If a you have cone. a funnel and there's a cone Correct. at the so bottom, we put, of a, it. we put a cone in there so it wasn't a, f- a flat surface. Mm-hmm. We put a cone down to just to try and angle the angle the. Anyway, all, all of these things worked, um, and we changed it from a, from a mechanical system to a pneumatic system. That's why when you heard the, the factory working, all you could hear was yeah, the clipping right. machine. Yes, you could hear no other other noise in the background. So with a pneumatic system, all basically working on air, the 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 pistons that are pushing. The, the two ingredients down the relish and the, and the and the starch that are pushing them down are now working on on air pressure through the through the softer bends which then which then alleviated the problem but uh, a long process not there's not something that happens in five minutes for sure and have you have, is this your first like full business started from the ground on on your own absolutely wow yeah, yeah. I mean it, because it was it was a product that was in my head the machine, the product, the specifications, all the things that it had to achieve have been in my head for all of these years. Wow. Um, so it was me regurgitating this and getting other people to try and see what, what, I, what I'm seeing. Um, and you, you also expect that everyone is going to see the product the way you see it the first time, which of course doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, you, you, you come up, you come up with, with, with hurdles that you never thought that you'd come up with. Um, but it's, it's, listen, it's, it's worth it and, and everyone kind of learns. You know? Well, I guarantee you, if you run into a Peace Corps volunteer that has ever lived in Kenya or Tanzania or Uganda, they would all agree with me that this is a very interesting and exciting Thank idea you. because they could all see it. We, if, you've, if you've lived in the countryside, you know, I, I mean, I am stunned at how great... Well, that's going to do it for this week's interview. Thank you so much to Lawrence Maddock for stopping by. 
The way that I met Lawrence was through my good friend and former colleague, Val Bays. Val and I have worked together for several years and become very close friends. You might recognize her name from another guest that I had on um, maybe 10 weeks ago. Her father is Bob Bays, the St. Louis County police detective that was one of the first breakout episodes that the podcast ever had. So I'm very excited because she is marrying Lawrence's son and uh, I'm very happy for her. If you want to see somebody that's pretty interesting on Twitter, you can do no better than V Bays, and I hope you do head over to follow her. That's V B A Y E S. Check her out on Twitter and let her know that you caught her name on the Vance Crow podcast. That's going to do it for me this week. Make sure you tune in on Friday for one of those bonus episodes where we talk about communication skills that can help you become a tangibly better communicator. Thanks so much for stopping by, and we'll see you next week.